0: So if you would now, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And this morning we're going to look at the first 20 verses. Originally I thought we'd get through verse 28, but um, didn't quite make it. Unless we wanted to have a hour and a half message. Now I've given this message a strange title, and it's because it covers so many very different things in just twenty verses. Signs leaven the church gates. And Hades you wouldn't think they would all go together but in these 20 verses that's where Jesus takes us okay beginning in verse 1 he says, right after the events of chapter 15 we read then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him asked that he would show them a sign from heaven you will call they've done this before in fact in the gospels they keep doing this even though they have seen so many signs already he answered and said to them when it is evening you say i will be it will be fair weather for the sky is red and in the morning It will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Noah. And he left them and departed. Now I'm going to take an aside right here. We're going to come back and discuss this. But I want you to notice it's really throughout Scripture. But in verse 4, Jesus says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it. That word that's translated and can also, and should many times, be translated but. It's the same word. It's the translator's choice on which to use, and I believe they have often made very, very bad choices. I'll read that Verse again, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You see how that makes more sense? And we'll see that again. We see that really throughout, not just the New Testament, but also the Old Testament. And I find that very unfortunate. That the translators don't really read the context to choose the correct word. the uh, The word can also be translated well, and also, but indeed, or even. So it has a lot of possible translations. The most common mistake they made, they make, I believe is by using the word and instead of the word but, because there's clearly a contrast that is given. And That's what the word but, or the word however, is used for. Now it's interesting that we read in the first verse that the Pharisees and Sadducees came together to test Jesus. The fact that they are working together revealed a a deep fear among them. The Sadducees and Pharisees were bitter enemies with diametrically opposite doctrines. (coughs) Excuse me. And the fact that they came together against Jesus shows that they saw him as a serious threat and, of course, because they were corrupt, they were right. Jesus was a serious threat to them. And then they talk about a sign from heaven. They were asking Jesus for a sign from heaven. He immediately condemned their hypocrisy. And then, as we saw back in chapter 12, they're really asking for a sign of astronomical proportions, like fire coming down from heaven, as Elijah did, or stopping the sun, as happened when Joshua was in the battle. But instead, Jesus gave them a sign from Scripture. This time, The Lord rebukes them for being so hung up on heavenly signs that they're unable to discern or to even see the obvious signs of the times all around them, signs that clearly point to prophetic Old Testament scriptures regarding Jesus' messianic credentials that were right before their eyes. They'd been watching Jesus now for quite a while, and they'd seen him perform thousands of signs. But they didn't want to look at those. They wanted him to do something more spectacular. In other words, these are people who would not believe even what was clearly right in front of them. You see, there were many prophecies, circumstances, and evidences in the Old Testament that should have made it clear to them as signs that the Messiah had come. Now, unfortunately, many people today are just as blind to the signs of the times regarding the Second Coming of our Lord it's so sad they just won't see what's right in front of them we'll go on now in verse 5 now when his disciples had come to the other side meaning the other side of the lake they had forgotten to take bread Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves? Because you have brought no bread. You see, sometimes we see that these disciples so far were really pretty dull minded. Jesus goes on, he says, Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many large baskets? you took up, how is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees a very important lesson and it's a strong lesson for us here as well. We need to read our Bibles in a good literal translation. Why? Because we too must be aware of the doctrines of the Pharisees and Sadducees of our day. False teachers whole denominations that believe that they know better than God. So they actually change the very words of the Bible to make it fit into today's evil, perverted culture. Specific ones I'll mention. The New Revised Standard Version the NIV, the New International Version, and several others. Those are dangerous translations. They are translations where people have changed God's Word. Imagine the audacity of changing the very words of God. There are other translations that are... The New Living is another one. Many of these are popular in a lot of churches. And that's because the pastor and the leadership haven't been careful in selecting the translations. But they do this to make it fit into today's evil and perverted culture. We need to beware of... whole religions that claim to be Christian, but that horribly twist and pervert the plain meaning of scripture. So we too must take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. We do that by praying for the insight of the Holy Spirit and really knowing God's word we need to read it and reread it every year we need to memorize key verses or whole chapters or books or even if you're able to do this I know of a number of people who have memorized the entire Bible but not just take it into our heads But study the Bible. Study the Bible, because it is one of the most important things that you will do in your life. And if done with believing faith, it is essential to your internal safety. And remember, the Holy Spirit is within you to help you. Remember, Jesus said that he will bring to our remembrance everything that Jesus has said and more. He will teach you things. Moving on, in verse 13, we're changing locations now. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Sorry. So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then verse 15, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That question, but who do you say, that I am I personally believe that this is the most important question in the whole Bible and your answer and my answer to that question is probably the most important answer that you can ever give who do you say that Jesus is who do you know him to be? Jesus had just asked his disciples the broad impersonal question, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? I find it funny that Jesus actually puts part of the answer right there in the question. But the disciples then faithfully reported what they had heard, what they had heard people saying about Jesus, that he was John the Baptist risen from the dead. King Herod even said that. Or that he was Elijah who never died but was taken to heaven by chariots of fire and was promised to return or Jeremiah, or another of the Old Testament prophets. But then Jesus quickly moved from the broad and impersonal to the very personal question. And Peter quickly answered correctly, because the Father had revealed the truth to him. As a result, Jesus blessed Peter, while at the same time, Making it clear to all his disciples, probably about a hundred and twenty people, including the twelve apostles, who he really was and who he really is still today. Then Jesus mentions his church for the first time, verse 18. Jesus says, and I also say to you that you are Peter, but on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Again, you noticed I used the word but, because there's a contrast given here. He says, on this rock, The word for Peter is Petros, P-E-T-R-O-S, and it means a stone. It means a small stone, one like, like David would use, like David did use against Goliath with his slingshot. But Jesus uses a play on words here with Petra. Which means a foundation boulder or bedrock, as Jesus used in the parable of the two foundations at the close of his Sermon on the Mount. Since the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that Jesus Christ is both the foundation and the head of the Church, it is absolutely wrong to incorrectly interpret that Peter could be the foundation of the Church, as the Roman Catholics have dangerously and blasphemously done. Here, Jesus is not giving either of those roles to Peter nor to anyone else. And he never will. I'm going to read a few verses that point to that truth. Acts 4.11 says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. This is what Peter, James, and John said to the Sanhedrin when they were arrested the first time. Jesus has become the cornerstone. As you probably know, the cornerstone was a very important stone in the foundation of any structure. Because the cornerstone, the very specific right angles of all of the sides of the cornerstone, they were used to measure every other stone that was laid for that structure. They all had to match up with the cornerstone. Otherwise it would be awkward and tilted, slanted, uneven, and unstable. But Jesus here is called the cornerstone. He's the one by which we all must measure our lives, that they match up with the angles, if you will, of Jesus, our cornerstone. If we're a little bit off kilter, then we'll, we'll be awkward, we'll be unstable. We won't stand strong, so we must use him as our model, our example, so that we too can be stable and strong. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, to contrast directly with the Roman Catholic heresy, we read, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You can't get much clearer than that. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he's the one who has laid the foundation of the church of which we also are a part. But he's also the head of the church. We read this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. Paul is talking about marriage, but you notice that as you read that section, he morphs into a discussion of Christ and the church as he's discussing the marriage of a husband and wife, a man and a woman. He just morphs right into this. He says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Those are strong verses, and they're just a few of many that testify to him being the foundation and being the head of the church. Now, there is a sense in which the apostles played a foundational role in the building of the church. We read that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. But the primary role is reserved for Christ alone and not ever assigned to Peter. So Jesus' words here are best interpreted as a simple play on words, saying that, here we go, a boulder-like truth came from the mouth of one who was a stone. When Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, that's the foundation, the truth on which the church is founded. In fact, Peter himself explains Christ's imagery in his first letter, that the church is built of living stones, that is believers who, like Peter, confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ Himself is the chief cornerstone. Read with me first Peter chapter two verses four to eight, and believe me, if he ever thought he was the foundation of the church, he never would have written these words. Speaking to the church, he says, coming to him, coming to Christ, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, you and me, In the church, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. A cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him, in the Messiah, will not be put to shame. Therefore, Peter says, To you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, he again quotes Old Testament scripture the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. He makes a clear distinction between Christ and the stones, the individual living stones, the believers, who make up the church. So we, each one of us, who believe is a stone, which the Lord is using to build up his church, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God, through Jesus Christ, Peter couldn't be more clear. And then Jesus says, and listen, he says, I will build my church. Pointedly in Jesus' own words, it is and it is to always be his church which he built. Matthew is the only gospel where the word church is found. It's the Greek word ekklesia. And as we said, Christ calls it my church, my ekklesia, my gathering of people for a specific purpose. And Christ is here emphasizing that he alone is its architect, builder, owner, and Lord. I want to show you something. It's an heretical thing, but it's the, it's the symbol that the Roman Catholic Church uses to designate the Pope. That is his symbol. And if you'll notice, it's two keys crossed that symbolize, the Catholics say, the keys to the kingdom. It's heretical. It's wrong. But there it is. And there are a lot of versions of this. It's been used for centuries to symbolize the Pope. But then Jesus goes on saying, And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The church, his church. Let's understand what these two important words mean as spoken by our Lord. Gates and Hades. In ancient times, the gates of fortified cities were elaborate areas and not just like doors that open and close. They were usually quite long with several right angles to get from the outside to the inside of the city. Right and left, 90-degree turns, and that was to prevent any enemy from just charging straight through. The walls of this area were lined with stone benches built right into the wall. And this area was covered and had functioned like city halls today where the leaders and the important citizens of the city the judges the magistrates the mayors if you will that's where they that's where they go every day the important citizens of the city to conduct the business of the city including questioning strangers who were entering. They had to walk right by the leaders of the city, who had the right, indeed the responsibility, to question them. If they were unfamiliar, what is your business here? Who are you going to see? What are you doing here? Questions like that. And if they didn't get a good answer, They may refuse them entry to that city. We read about this meaning or we read about this meaning of gate in the book of Ruth this morning when we read verses 1 to 12. Boaz went to the gate. He went to the gate not because he wanted to go out of the city because that's where all the important people were gathered and that's where he had to conduct legal business which he did and which was witnessed by the elders of the city the leaders and notice he picked 10 elders as well as his relatives so there were 11 men there plus Boaz who were used. And traditionally, 10 was used because that's where Abraham stopped when he was asking the Lord directly if he would destroy Sodom, if there were 10 righteous men there. Of course, the Lord's answer was, sure, but there weren't 10 righteous men there. So the Jews have traditionally, and still do, call 10 faithful Jewish men the foundation of having a synagogue, of having a quorum of Jewish men. So this was legally an official operation having those ten men and you'll notice when Paul went into I believe it was the city I'm not sure if it was Philippi but one of the first cities that he went into every time he went into a city he first went to the synagogue but in one city he didn't because there wasn't a synagogue so he went, he went to the, the river, the stream, where people gathered. And that's where he met a righteous woman, woman who dealt in purple cloth. And that's where he presented the gospel and where she invited him to come and stay with him. But again, there wasn't a, there wasn't a synagogue because there were 10 righteous Jews. Jewish men there but he was there to share the gospel which he did. I digress. These gates were the literal gates of the city and they were usually places of great physical strength. They were the, the strongest part of the city walls. They were the most difficult to conquer or to defeat. They were strong. And they also had a number of armed guards who were also stationed in rooms that were built within the gates. So our Lord's expression, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church means that neither the plots, the strategies, the strength of Satan and his demons, the leader of the evil world, the leaders of the evil world, the evil domain, they will not prevail against his church. Ever. The church that was founded and established by Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus spoke of the gates of a particular place, Hades. Today, and ever since Jesus' resurrection and ascension, Hades has been the place of punishment for the spirits of dead unbelievers. It is where they go when they die. In the Old Testament, the word used to describe the realm of the dead was Sheol. It's the same word as Hades, the same meaning, the same place, but it's in Hebrew instead of Greek. Sheol, which simply means the place of the dead or the place of departed souls. Sheol. The New Testament Greek equivalent, as I said, of Sheol is Hades, which also refers to the place of the dead. Now hear me. This is a very important truth. Before Jesus came and died, all people went to Hades or Sheol when they died. All people, the righteous and the unrighteous. And as we read in the the story of Lazarus and the rich man, before Christ, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Before that, Sheol or Hades, was a realm with two divisions, a place of blessing and a place of torment. Again, I refer you to Luke 16 and the story of Lazarus and the rich man. The abodes of the saved of that division of Hades and the abode of the lost are both generally called Hades in the Bible, sometimes translated as hell. Incorrectly, but we see that in the Old King James. The abode of the saved was also called Abraham's bosom, Abraham's side, or Abraham's lap, and in para- as paradise, in Luke 23, when Jesus, on the cross, responded to the repentant thief, the divisions of the saved and the lost were separated by a great chasm. In Sheol or Hades. A great chasm that cannot be crossed, as Abraham told the rich man in Luke 16, 26. When Jesus died, people say, Jesus went to hell when he died. The Apostles' Creed says that. But it's very inaccurate because it doesn't make a distinction. When Jesus died, he went to the blessed side of Sheol, or paradise. According to Ephesians 4, 8-10, we know that our Lord took Old Testament believers with him out of Sheol to heaven. But all the unbelieving dead still go to the cursed side, the side of torment, to await their final judgment. That's why in the New Testament, the only souls still in Sheol are unbelievers from the Old Testament right up to today unbelievers when they die they go to Hades and they suffer until the final judgment at the great white throne so again Jesus is clearly proclaiming that no forces no gates of Hades the place now of only unbelievers and the powers of evil and darkness, including Satan and his demons, can or ever will prevail against Christ's Church. At times like we're in now, today, we seriously need to remember this promise for the Church. Because with our eyes and ears, as we look in our world, it looks like Satan is defeating the church. It looks like he's prevailing against the church. He's not. He's not. And we need to remember this promise of Christ's that evil will never prevail against his church. But Jesus goes even further, speaking either to Peter alone, but more probably to all 12 of his disciples. He says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So the idea of Peter holding the keys of the kingdom has led many varied interpretations of many Christians throughout the centuries. Some people think this (laughs) means that Peter has the authority to admit people to heaven or to keep people out of heaven. I, like you, (laughs) have heard many times of the popular image and many jokes of Peter at the pearly gates of heaven, allowing people to enter or turning them away. These keys represent authority. And here Peter I'm sorry, Christ gives Peter and by extension all other believers, the authority to declare what is bound or loosed in heaven. This actually echoes the promise of Christ in John 20 where he gives the disciples the authority to forgive or retain the sins of people before he sends them out. All these actions should be understood in the context of Matthew 18, where Christ lays out specific instructions for church discipline, for dealing with sin in the church. Some people, those who misunderstand the two very different words for rock, think it also means that Peter was the first pope and that his supposed successors have the keys that were first given to Peter. And as we, I showed you, the papal insignia of the Roman Catholic Church is made up of two prominent keys crossed together. Now, there is no question that the Apostle Peter had a special place among the disciples and that he also had some unique opportunities For example, he is always listed first when the apostles are listed in the Gospels. He did open doors of the kingdom to the Jews in Acts chapter 2. Remember in his first sermon after Pentecost when he was filled with the Spirit indwelling him Peter gave that incredible sermon, very unlike anything Peter had done before. He gave the, he opened doors, I'm sorry, to the, to the kingdom of God, to the Jews who would be believers in Jesus. And then chapters later, in Acts chapter 10, when he was called from Joppa, to Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea along the coast of the Mediterranean, he was called there by a Roman Gentile centurion because God told this centurion, God told him to call for Peter. And then Peter went and probably for the first time in his life, he went into a Gentile home, the home of Cornelius, that centurion. And there he presented the gospel and Cornelius and all his family and all who were there were saved and were filled with the Holy Spirit. So Peter was used to open doors of the kingdom of heaven to the Gentiles. And yet, despite those very important privileges that Peter had, there is no question There is no biblical evidence whatsoever that Peter's privileges or authority were to be passed on. There is not even a whisper in scripture that Peter's and the other apostles' authority was to be passed on. Folks, that is a fiction, an evil fiction that has been passed on through the development of heretical and blasphemous doctrine. Instead, instead of what the Catholic Church has done wickedly, during the period of the early church, local authority of the church, pastors, elders and deacons that authority was granted to individuals who met strict qualifications set down by the apostles especially the apostle paul in first timothy chapter 3 and in ephesians chapter 4 and in titus chapter 1 the qualification for pastors and elders. You will find it there. Qualifications for leaders of the church are found there. First Timothy, Ephesians, and Titus. You've read them, you've studied them, you know them. And that's in direct contrast to the farce that Peter was the first pope and passed it on. So, the authority of the Church, beginning with Christ, was shared by Him with the Apostles, who passed it on to qualified local and regional men who were qualified. At the same time, Jesus is always the ultimate authority of His Church and His Word, the Bible, is the daily working handbook that spells out the proper operation of the church. In fact, as we read the letters of the New Testament, including Paul's letters, we see this transition from the apostles to local church leaders happening. He tells Timothy, to appoint leaders in the church at Ephesus. He tells the others to appoint leadership as they travel and spread the gospel. And we see that the Bible itself is used, their letters and the Old Testament were used as authoritative in dealing with sin in the church. Now, it isn't clear where Jesus stops speaking to just Peter and addresses all of the apostles. Most scholars believe that to be here, if not earlier, where Jesus says, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Binding and loosening were administrative terms in Jewish life whenever a Jew came up against the law of Moses. That person was either bound or loosed in regard to the law. (sighs) To loose was to be innocent under the law or to be proclaimed innocent under the law. To be bound was to be declared guilty. Under the law. It was to uh, prohibit, to bind was to prohibit, to loose was to be innocent, to bind again was to be guilty. Jesus promises that Peter and the other apostles would be able to set boundaries and standards authoritatively for the new covenant community, the church. This was the authority given to the apostles and prophets to build a foundation with Christ as the chief cornerstone. Again, I I, I refer you to what you have read and studied and been taught. In the New Testament, especially the epistles, we see the workings of the church Under the authority of the apostles. Think about it. When there was the problem of circumcision, where people were teaching that a man had to be circumcised first before he could be saved and become a part of the church. That's not what the Bible taught, but they were confused. So what did they do? They went to the apostles, gathered in Jerusalem, and asked them to make a decision. That's called the first council of the church. Jesus wasn't there anymore to make that decision for them. But in the way he was, because all of the apostles, indeed all of the Christians, had been indwelt by the Holy Spirit who would teach them all things that Jesus taught and who was also the author of everything in the Bible. So we should understand this as Jesus giving or actually sharing both his permission and authority to the first generation apostles to make the rules and standards for the early church and indirectly through their inspired writings that would guide all generations of the church. You might remember as their rabbi, Jesus did this binding and loosening for his own disciples without using the same words This is what he did when he allowed them to take the grains of wheat in the field on the Sabbath, back in Matthew 12. The church's authority is very interesting because it isn't to determine innocence or guilt, but to understand the judgment of God based on the principles of his word When churches make such judgments on the basis of God's word, they can be certain that God is in agreement with them. In other words, whatever the church binds or loosens on earth is already bound or loosed in heaven. When the church says the unrepentant person is bound in sin, the church is saying what God says about that person. When the church acknowledges that a repentant person has been loosed from that sin, God agrees. We see this in First and Second Corinthians, when a man who had been fornicating with his father's wife was bound by the church was declared guilty and was kicked out of the church and disciplined by the church. We then see in Second Corinthians that he has been repentant, that he stopped sinning, he repented, and Paul told the church then to loose him, to forgive him, set him free of that bondage and accept him again into the church. And this is also what it means when the Bible says in Matthew 18, that where two or three are gathered in my name, there Jesus is in the midst of the people. He's talking about the legal decisions of the people. Or two or three are gathered in Jesus' name or they agree with him and his judgments in heaven. That's what those words refer to. They do not refer to some presence of Jesus when Christians get together. That is a gross abuse of those words that you've used and I've used and is used many times in Scripture. But it's wrong. It's a wrong use of that verse. In verse 20 we read, Then he, Jesus, commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. So through all of this, from Peter's explanation that God gave to him, Peter's answer, right up to what we just read. He's explaining that he is the Christ. But because he didn't want people to know because it wasn't yet the proper time, he told them not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Now, next week, we'll complete this chapter and move on into chapter 17. But for now, we'll summarize several important points from today's message. There's about nine of them. First, the generation that missed the signs of the times of our Lord's first coming should be a negative example for us to be certain that we don't neglect the signs of the times, and that we not be prepared for His second coming. Our Lord commands us to be ready and to be aware of false Christs and other deceptions that will come before He returns. Also, as He warned His followers to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So we too must beware of the false doctrines of deceiving people of our day. And to be serious in knowing our Bibles so that we can discern truth from false and not fall away as we see so many people, so many nominal Christians doing today there's not a day goes by that we don't read it or see it in the news people falling away we need to know who Jesus is we need to know that he's not only the Messiah but he is the eternal Almighty God he is our Creator our king and our savior and our master. He is the one that we in all the world and the universe have been created for. Not for us, but for him. And we should be living primarily for his glory. And that truth should deeply impact our lives that truth of who he is. Jesus is the founder, the foundation, and the head of his church. He sets its rules, standards, purposes, goals, and and methods and means of operation and discipline. Jesus is the foundation of his church. He's the rock on which it stands. He's the cornerstone that we need to measure our lives by. All the evil powers of Hades cannot prevail against his church of which we are a part. This should serve to reassure and strengthen us. Hades or Sheol is that temporary holding place for the dead. As I said before, Christ, it was all the dead divided into two places. When Christ died, he went to the blessed side and took the faithful believers to heaven with him. Jesus gave the keys to the kingdom, first to his apostles, then through them to his church. We know that the only way to enter the kingdom of heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ. So using the keys of the kingdom is to open the kingdom of God for people by presenting the gospel to them. And then by thereby responding, by them believing in and receiving Jesus Christ. And finally, Jesus also promised that the church, by understanding and applying God's word, does have the authority to bind and loose believers of the church by applying biblical church discipline. When we do this faithfully, we are assured that the person is also bound or loosed by God in heaven. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of these details, all of these facts, all of these corrections of error in the church that we find in these 20 verses. I pray that you would help us to remember them and to apply them in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs) Boom. <laughs>